Hey, good morning. Grab your Bibles. We are going to be in them. <laughs> and uh, get your fingers ready because we're going to be uh, jumping through a, a multiple passages this morning. So kind of uh, spiritual calisthenics, spiritual aerobics, if you will. You're going to get to know your Bible a little better this morning. I, I want to share a message that I would consider a big picture message, um, kind of a refocusing message. And uh, it's based on things that the Lord's been showing me. I'm in a kind of a and in very wonderful growth time in my own spiritual life. And some of what I'm sharing is literally what God is, is sharing with me. Maybe not super profound, but very profoundly impacting to me. So um, I hope this blesses you. Let's pray together and then we're going to dive right into the word. And um, trust that God will bless you this morning with the truth from his scripture. Lord, we, we lift this time to you. We trust you with this time. You are the great teacher. We submit underneath your tutelage this morning, O Lord. Holy Spirit, may we be, uh, my prayer is that we're teachable, that our minds and hearts are moldable, and that, Lord, we receive from you and we grow. We move forward, we step forward, we're strengthened, and, Lord, uh, we walk away from here different. I pray it in the good, strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I have a question for you. Why did Peter get out of the boat? <laughs> I know, kind of an odd question. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to ask you again. Think about this. Why did Peter get out of the boat? Many of you know this story, even if you weren't raised in church or don't know much about the Bible. It's a fairly common story. Peter walking on water with Jesus. And so... As I read this story out of Matthew 14, that's the first place you can turn, is Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. We're going to read through it. I want you to contemplate, why did Peter get out of the boat? He was the only one who did. Why did he get out of the boat? The background of this story is this, that Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with simply two fish and five loaves that he multiplied. A phenomenal miracle. Peter had just witnessed this miracle. And the people were being sent away. It was late. And so we'll pick up the story in Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. It says, Immediately after the people were fed, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So he dismissed them. He said, "Time uh, teaching time is done. And after he sent the multitudes away, Jesus went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land. So it was not near the shore. It was out in the middle of the, of, of the Sea of Galilee, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. The storms in that region were brutal. And they were in the middle of one. <laughs> and in the fourth watch, somewhere between 3 a.m. in the morning and 6 a.m. in the morning, so likely pitch dark or very dark, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. <laughs> Amazing. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. 
It is I, do not be afraid. Take courage. Those are two great words for us today. Take courage, brothers and sisters. Take courage. But Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me or bid me to come to you on the water. Bold ask. <laughs> oh, Peter, impetuous Peter. Good for you, brother. Good for you. And he said, or Jesus said to Peter, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Can you picture this? Imagine the other 11 watching. Their eyes are as big as saucers. They're monsters. I mean, they're just, eyes are bugging out. But, verse 30, seeing the wind, and I would insert there probably four, five, six, seven foot waves. <laughs> he became afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, Pete, why did you doubt? You're doing so good. It was exciting to watch you walking on the water, brother. I don't think the Lord scolded him. I think the Lord chuckled. And I think the Lord kind of gave him a little jab saying, Bud, you were doing so good. You're doing so good. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, so obviously Jesus grabs his hand, pulls him out of the water. That's amazing in and of itself. Peter was not a small man, I'm sure. And they walk back to the boat together, climb over the side with the other disciples. And it says, and those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. What a story. What a story. So back to the question then. Why did Peter get out of the boat? Why would a sane man, unless he had a death wish, get out of the boat in the middle of the night, in the middle of the lake, in the middle of a raging storm? Why would he do such a thing? And the answer I believe absolutely in the passage is this. He did it to get to a person. He did it for a person. A person. Peter's life, if you read in Luke chapter 5, had so been rocked by Jesus. Jesus had wrought a miracle for Peter in Luke chapter 5 when Peter had fished all night as a professional fisherman, Jesus said, listen, listen, Peter, let's go out into the lake and let's do some more fishing. Peter condescended and said, Lord, I, I fished all night. We got nothing. There's nothing here. Dry as a bone. But if you say so, we'll do it. And Peter throws his nets overboard and they can't hardly handle all the fish. And Peter says, he drops on the, on the floor of the boat in front of Jesus and says, Lord, get away from me. I am an evil man inference. I'm in the presence of someone who is so superior to me. <laughs> Get away from me, Lord. I don't want to soil you with my dirt. And Jesus wasn't intimidated a bit. And he said, Peter, I'm going to teach you how to catch men. Come follow me. And Peter quit his job on the spot and began to follow Jesus. His life was transformed. And when he saw Jesus walking on that water that night, he had just fed 10,000 people, potentially, with women and children. 
all of those things came to a head and Peter said, I'm not staying in the boat. I've got to go to Jesus. I've got to get to Jesus. And he was willing to do something so uncomfortable and so crazy, not because he had a death wish or because he was just a nut job, but because of a person. Brothers and sisters, our Christian life is not about a movement. It's not about a philosophy. It's not about a denomination or a church or a religion. It is firmly and specifically about a person. Jesus. And if we ever lose focus, as Peter did, we will instantly begin to sink. Our lives will begin to sink beneath the very waves that we have been distracted by. I just recently spent time talking with a young man who grew up in a Christian home, grew up in a Christian youth group, surrounded by Christians, went to university and has lost his faith. He now claims to be an agnostic. He got his eyes off of Jesus. He allowed the waves of philosophy, the waves of opposition, the waves of contrary voices to penetrate his heart and mind and he is sinking with no immediate intention of answering any of those questions and finding out what the truth is, refocusing back on Jesus. So I want to focus on five things this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix means to decisively and purposefully turn your eyes away from other things to lock them onto something else. The picture that comes to my mind is a homing missile that locks onto its target and it is relentless in the pursuit of that target. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do. Fix, home in on Jesus. Home your eyes in on Jesus. I am convinced that Peter walking on water is supposed to be the normal Christian life. Our Christian life is not meant to be lived in the strength of our own flesh. We are not. The Christian life isn't trying to be like Jesus, guys, gals. This is a misnomer in the church that, well, I'm, what would Jesus do? How do I be like Jesus? Now, I understand those questions, but the reality is the more I understand what the Christian life is, it is not trying to be like Jesus. It is getting out of the way so Jesus lives his life through us. It is becoming a channel for Jesus. <laughs> Did you get that? Walking on water is the normal Christian life, but it requires us to fix our eyes on our source. The moment we sway, we start to sink. The moment we sway and our vision is distracted onto reports, rumors, we start to sink. So I'm going to look at five different things this morning. And I'm going to do it short and sweet to get through this. But grab hold of this. I trust that it'll encourage you. Number one, we pledge our allegiance, our lives, our loyalty, and our love to a person. To a person. 
not an organization, not a movement, not a church, not a denomination, to a person. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. This story is so powerful. Joshua is the leader of the, the Israeli people, the Israelites. They've come out of Egypt. God has demonstrated his power to them in dramatic ways. They've buried a whole generation who refused to trust God, refused to believe God, refused to submit to the leadership of God. They buried him under the sand and now a new generation has come up. They've crossed over the Jordan River miraculously, and they're getting ready to attack Jericho. This is like a brand new NFL team getting ready on the first game of their season to play the defending Super Bowl champions. This is daunting. <laughs> and Joshua is there outside of Jericho, this city with walls so big that it was said that they raced uh, chariots on the walls, massive, biggest city, most fortified city of all of the promised land, and it's their first game of the season. And Joshua is pondering, how do we do this? We know God is powerful, but I got no strategy for this. And let's pick up the story in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was, was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. Okay, now that's a little threatening, right? <laughs> the stranger who's got a drawn sword in enemy territory, and so Joshua approaches him. Joshua's a warrior. Joshua's, Joshua's a good man. <laughs> and he says to him, he challenges him, are you for us or are you for them? Are you for our adversaries? And the answer he gets is not what he expected. The man said, no, no, I'm not for you. I'm not for them. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. That in Hebrew is Jehovah Sabaoth. Wherever you see in scripture, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, and you'll see it over and over and over in scripture. That is Jehovah Sabaoth, and it means the commander of the angel armies of heaven the most powerful fighting force in all of creation, all of the universe, the army of heaven. And this was the commander of the army of heaven. And it says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? This man received the worship of Joshua. So we know this was not an angel. This, I absolutely am convinced, was Jesus himself. Because we know Jesus is the commander of the armies of heaven. <laughs> we'll see that in Revelation 19 in just a few moments. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then he gives Joshua a strategy that Joshua would never have cooked up in a million years for defeating this city. And that's what God does. So here's, here's the bottom line, guys. We pledge our love, our loyalty, and our allegiance to a person, and that person is Jehovah Sabaoth, the commander of heaven's armies, who does not come to take sides. He's not right or left. He's not liberal or conservative. He's not blue or red. He is. He takes over. It's all about him. 
He's not endorsing anybody. He endorses the fact that he is the commander of heaven's armies. And friends, that is who we pledge allegiance to. First and foremost. And if we get our eyes onto a party or onto some other thing than Jesus himself, we've missed it and we'll start to sink. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus, to a camp where he is the leader. He is the leader. I was standing in the line at the post office the other day and a very, very tall man, about 6'5", maybe, was standing behind me with a mask fully covering his face and the, the uh, postmaster was barking out orders for us to keep six feet apart and all the rest. It was quite the scene. And he looks at me and he shakes his head and he says, I never dreamed at 73 years of age it would come to this. And I just shook my head and said, I know, brother, I know. And I said, but I've been reading my Bible a lot. And here's what I know. That if you are aligned with Jesus, it only gets better. The ending is very good. <laughs> but if you're not aligned with him, it only gets worse. And he just, his eyes got big and he said, really? <laughs> and that was all the conversation we had because we got called up to the counter and then out he went and I didn't see him again. But friends, here's the reality. Here's another thing about being aligned with Jesus. We can be bold. We can be bold about the future. I had a boldness to share with that guy because I knew my commander. I know how the story ends. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But we pledge allegiance to Jesus. Number two, we serve, sacrifice, and suffer for a person. We serve, we sacrifice, and we suffer for a person. It is so interesting to me as I've been reading the book of Hebrews. This week I read the whole book of Hebrews and it's a very tough read. It's a, it's a strong book. Lots of doctrine and theology. But the whole book is about Jesus. But what I realized and it was so startling to me is that the audience for this book is undergoing incredible persecution. In chapter 10, it's, it, it indicates they're getting their property stolen, confiscated. They're going to jail. They're having to visit one another in jail. There is a lot of drama going on in this church. And yet the author, who knows about the drama, clearly because he, he acknowledges it, is not addressing the drama directly. He is teaching them about the superiority of Jesus. And I just wondered at this, and I've been doing a study of many of the books of the New Testament because I know the church was born in adversity. What are the church leaders saying to the people who are living in adversity? And in almost every case, they're talking about Jesus, 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 Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, the author says this, Consider him, Jesus. He's telling these people who are suffering and struggling, he's saying, weigh yourself against Jesus. Ponder Jesus and weigh yourself against him. Compare yourself to him. This is the only place that I know of where we would encourage someone to compare themselves with someone else. The author is saying, compare yourself to Jesus, who has endured so much hostility at the hands of sinners against himself. Compare yourself to him so that you don't lose heart and grow weary. 
Then he adds, for you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Oh, he did not give them a soft shoulder. He was not, he didn't jump in the boat of self-pity with them. He said, I understand you're going through trials and difficulty. Consider Jesus. Serve, sacrifice, suffer for Jesus. For Jesus, consider him who endured so much hostility at the hands of sinners so you don't grow weary and lose heart. We serve, we suffer, we're willing to sacrifice for a person who has sacrificed infinitely more than we ever will. Awesome. Number three. We are even willing to die for a person. Not just sacrifice and suffer, but die, give our lives. The whole history of the Christian uh, church is a, a history of martyrdom. 11 of the 12 founding members died a horrible death of martyrdom. John was exiled on Patmos. He's the only one who we don't think died a martyr's death, but he was tortured and persecuted horribly. Today, we know that there are many believers giving their lives for their faith, maybe as many today as ever in history. The history of the Christian church is that Jesus has been persecuted and we will be persecuted. Paul said, if you live righteously in Christ Jesus, you will suffer. It's a given. Our nation has not known much suffering. But friends, buckle up. Buckle up. I'm not a prophet and I'm not prophesying here. I'm just looking at the trends. But guess what? We are willing to even die to give our lives for a person, for a person, Jesus. Now, what is the mindset and mentality of somebody who's willing to do that? I want to turn you to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And here's the background. 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 1. Here's the background. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul gives this young Pastor Timothy, his apprentice, Paul's apprentice, a blueprint, a game plan for how to lead the church. And Paul is this, or Timothy is this brand new little pastor. <laughs> He's taken on a load. Paul says it's going to be tough. You're going to have to confront people. They're going to look down on you because you're young. You're going to have all this opposition from the outside. But then in chapter six, he says, Flee youthful lust. You're not only going to have opposition from the outside, you're going to have opposition from inside yourself as well. Flee youthful lust and run to righteousness. Flee from lust, run to righteousness. And Paul exhorts him, gives him this handbook. And then there's time in between. And then the second letter comes. And the second letter is gentle, but it's direct. Paul is saying, Timothy, you're falling down on the job. Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, verse 5, he says, you have a sincere faith, brother. I've seen that in you. That's why you're pastoring. You're a solid man of God. But he says, you have not been given a spirit of fear. You're acting out of fear, cowardice, timidity. But you've been given by God a spirit of power, love, and of a sound mind. Timothy, Rise up, my brother. Rise up, my brother, because you're playing the coward. You're being timid. You're not standing up and entering into what God has for you. You're backing down. You're taking cover. You're retreating. And then Paul says these words. 
He says in verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Ashamed means disfigured. The word is a picture of disfigurement. Shame disfigures us. Being ashamed creates disfigurement. Here's what Psalm 34 verse 5 says. It says, Those who look to him for help will be radiant. Their faces will never be covered with shame. They will never be disfigured because their faces will be radiant. It is the legacy, the destiny, the privilege of believers to have faces that are radiant. But how do you have a radiant face when, when there's difficult times? Here's how. Verse 11 and 12. Paul says this in verse 11. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. That word appointed means I was grabbed hold of by God. <laughs> I was grabbed hold of by God. And back in verse 8, he says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Whenever we suffer, God doesn't abandon us. God comes in with his power and enables us, strengthens us. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says. My grace is sufficient for my power is perfected in your weakness. If we're suffering, you guarantee God's power is going to be there. So Paul says, I'm suffering and I didn't sign up for this. I was appointed. God grabbed hold of me. He recruited me. He drafted me into this. I didn't sign up for all this. I had a great life going before all of this. I had position and, and power and prestige and people looked up to me. And I, I was, yes, I was killing Christians. But in my line of work, that was, that was highly, highly uh, uh, admired. <laughs> but I swapped all of it to follow Jesus when Jesus grabbed hold of me. And he says, for this reason, because I've been grabbed hold of by God, I also suffer. In other words, suffering is part of the package. Verse 12, but I am not ashamed. I'm not disfigured. For I know whom I have believed. That word know means I know by experience. God has proven himself over and over and over. My whole story is a testimony of the greatness, the faithfulness, the goodness, the power, the intervention, the provision of God when I'm down to nothing. <laughs> it's my whole story, Paul says. I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced. I'm absolutely confident. How would you love that to be your story and your walk with God? I'm absolutely confident in this God that I follow. I'm convinced that he is able. That's the word dunatos, which is kissing cousins to dunamis, which is the word for dynamite. What is he saying? I'm absolutely confident in this God. He has a track record, and I know he's got an arsenal. He's got the firepower to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What does that mean? I have a track record with God. He grabbed hold of me. But I am not disfigured or ashamed of him because I have an experience with him. I have knowledge of him. He has been faithful. He has been awesome. He has been, he has provided, he has rescued, and he has a firepower to continue to do it and to guard what I have entrusted. That means what I have set in front of him, what I have set at his feet. What was that? His whole life. His past, he entrusts forgiveness of his past where he was killing Christians. He entrusted and set before the feet of God his whole life on this planet and his eternal destiny. 
So I am able to entrust all of that to him because I know him. I'm absolutely convinced that he has the firepower to take care of me. I've entrusted everything until that day. What day? When we see him face to face. When we get across the finish line. When we graduate. Friends, we are willing to die for a person. We are willing to die for a person who we know, who has the firepower, who will get us across the finish line beautifully. Jesus. Number four, we look forward to the coming of a person. Jesus. 400 biblical prophecies in the Old Testament foretelling the first coming of Jesus. We're about to celebrate Christmas. The first coming of Jesus as a babe in the manger. Almost three times that many foretell his second coming. Simply want to declare to you this, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. We live in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. He's coming again. He's coming again. The last recorded words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 22 verse 20 is, I am coming quickly. And then John, the last recorded words of a human in the Bible, come, Jesus, <laughs> come, Jesus. And that's our heart. That's our prayer. That's our desire. Come, Jesus. We anticipate the coming of a person, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Revelation 19 describes him. Tattooed on his thigh is the, is the declaration, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He comes on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him, and he sets everything right. We look forward to the coming of a person, but lastly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to a person, Jesus. I want you to visualize this final scene. Philippians says this, and I want to read it to you. It says this, At the name of Jesus, this is Philippians 2, verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, the angels, and on earth, us, and under the earth, the demons of hell. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Brothers and sisters, every knee will bow and every mouth will confess to a person. Jesus, visualize. The angels will come first, those, those in heaven. Michael the archangel, the great warrior of Israel, will bow before Jesus and acknowledge your Lord. I've served you my whole existence. Gabriel will come, the one who announced the birth of Jesus to Mary. You, you are Lord, will bow his knee and declare, you are Lord. I've served you my whole existence. And every angel of heaven, all of the messengers of God that have protected us, that have fought for us, that have served our master loyally throughout all of recorded time in history, will bow their knee and with Gratitude and pride will declare, you are Lord. And then those who are on the earth, every person born, will do the same. Every 
Old Testament saint, every New Testament saint, every pagan king, every political leader, every military leader, every actor and actress, every athlete, every billionaire, every millionaire, every blue collar worker, every woman, man, and child, and you and I will bow our knee and we will declare to Jesus, you are Lord, you are King. And then a third group will come and it's like a big vault will be opened up from the depths below and one by one, every demon of hell who has tempted us, who has tried to thwart us from following Jesus, who has whispered words of discouragement, depression, deceit, you name it, all the dirty deeds. Oh, brothers and sisters, listen, every demon of hell will have to bow their knee before Jesus. They have fought him for centuries, all of time. They have tried to thwart him. They have stolen, they have killed, and they have destroyed. That is all they have done. But at the end of time, every demon, every demon, every demon will bow their knee and will have to declare out loud with their voices, you, Jesus, the one we have fought, the one we have hated, the one we have despised, you are Lord. Can you imagine this scene? But there will be one final knee that bows. Out of that pit will come the dragon himself, the serpent, the roaring lion who seeks to devour, and Satan himself will bow his knee to Jesus, the one who created him as Lucifer, the most beautiful angel of heaven, the shining star, who defiled himself because he tried to overthrow Jesus in pride and arrogance, he too will bow the knee and declare to Jesus, you are Lord, you are Lord. Brothers and sisters, that will be epic drama like we've never seen. You and I live to see a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to a person, to Jesus. You are Lord. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus and walk on water with him. That is your legacy, your destiny. That's what you've been called to. But fix your eyes on Jesus, the person of Jesus. Hallelujah. Father, we lift this message to you. For those who love you and know you, may this challenge them to draw near to you, to grow deeper with you, to be more passionate about you, more vocal, more willing to love you with everything that they've got. And if there's someone who is not yet following you, may this truth penetrate the very core of their being. And may they drop to their knee before it's too late and say, you are Lord to the glory of God. And may their life be changed, dramatically changed. And I pray it in your powerful name. Amen. Bless you. Bless you. Bless you. Have a phenomenal week. I'll see you next week. God bless you. Have a great week. Bye-bye.